This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 164 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And before I introduce my guest, here is a review that I've received on Apple Podcast. Amazing podcast, instant classic, five stars. Jackie does such a great job hosting this podcast. It's entertaining and provides the best information about the truth in diet recommendations. You should definitely follow this show. And that's by Rough Dog 113 from the United States. So thank you, RoughDog113. If you haven't yet left a review, please do. It really helps us and I may read it out at the top of the show. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Laura Buchanan. We've been meaning to do this interview for a long time, but in the interview, you'll hear why it's taken us so long for us to get together. Let me tell you about Laura. Dr. Laura Buchanan is a double board certified physician in family and obesity medicine with a passion for using lifestyle modification as the first line of care. She's also a certified metabolic health practitioner, MHP, and a board founding member of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners. She completed her family medicine residency at Wake Forest in 2022 and was a valedictorian of her class at the University of Florida College of Medicine. The mission that drives her is to help people age successfully. That passion was initially derived from a love of sports, but has since evolved and expanded to include a passion for healthy living generally, including the importance of nutrition, exercise, mental wellness and an optimal use of the medical system. She sees her role as a doctor being twofold, promoting prevention and practicing medicine. 
She's currently accepting patients across the United States via telemedicine with Dr. Tro Kalasian. For the show notes, go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 164. So let's go and hear from Laura. Welcome, Dr. Laura, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with me today. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Great to see you. It's taken us a long time to organize, but I'm glad we eventually got together. Yes, absolutely. And you have a good reason why you haven't been at work recently, don't you? I do. It's one of the best things ever. So I've got a new three-month-old at home and he, his name is James, is just been a rock star these past few months and I've been getting to hang out with him and my husband who's been out as well with me. Excellent. Fabulous. And I'm, and I'm going to come back to James because, um, yeah, I, I've, I've got something. But let's start, as we normally do, with where in the world are you? Yeah, I'm in North Carolina in the United States. Excellent. And so why don't you start by telling us how you I've seen um, some your video on Dr. Tro's website and you looked very athletic and very slim from a young age. So how did you find metabolic health and what's your journey here and how did you find Dr. Tro? Yeah, so it's true. All growing up, I played tons of sports, soccer, tennis, and really that was my passion. And then as I got a little bit older through high school, undergrad, I saw my grandparents on and just people I loved age differently. Some were aging very successfully and some unfortunately were dealing with chronic medical conditions and was just a really big struggle. And so I realized it was really just through their lifestyles that that was entirely being driven, not just activity, but truly what they were eating. So I kind of fast forward in medical school, have a nutrition two week intensive that didn't really provide a lot of education on how could I actually apply nutrition to people? How could I help people change their lives with nutritional advice or what they're eating and started really diving deep and found Jason Fung's obesity code, Nina Teichel's big fat surprise, the low carb MD podcast, and, um, you know, several other low carb USA conferences, but basically just following the evidence saying, you know, I did not eat red meat for almost 10 years. Cause I thought it was going to be, it was bad for me. That was what I was taught. Yeah. And as I followed the evidence, it was so clearly the data to support those statements that red meat is going to cause cancer or is going to cause a heart attack is terrible data. And now I eat red meat every single day and I feel very good about that. And I feel very good in general. And so it's just really following the data um, in medical school. And then I started wearing a continuous glucose monitor in my fourth year of medical school and realized some of the things I was eating, these healthy, quote, oatmeal fiber bites that had only two grams of sugar, eight grams of fiber. I was like, this has got to be good for me. And my sugar was going above 180. And so from there, it was just everything was coming together that are currently what we're taught is just inaccurate in many ways. And then how we can help people is very different than what we're taught classically in medical school and even some of the, you know, trainings in residency. Yeah. So how did you get on? So you were, you were learning all this stuff. How hard was it not to mention stuff in school or, um, did you mention it and then you got a strange response? You know, what was going on while you were still at school? 
Yeah. So in medical school, there was people knew kind of what I was doing or studying and they'd see me bring in my massive meal prep bags and would ask me about that and just kind of interested, but I didn't really push back against any attendings or kind of the doctors that are training you or ask questions. I was kind of more just quiet learning everything at that point in residency. I decided from the get go that I was going to practice low carb and I was going to try to help my patients improve their metabolic health, reverse their diabetes with the ketogenic diet. And initially I did get pushback um, because, you know, I have a patient coming in to see me for the first time. I'm a first year resident. This patient's A1C is above 10 and I'm not putting them on medication. Instead, I'm saying here, let's try this lifestyle plan and use this continuous glucose monitor where, and that is, you know, would be very shocking for someone. This patient's A1C is above 10, which is very high. Their average blood sugar is well over 250 and you're not going to use medication. And so I had to defend my kind of why I was doing that, try to bring, I'd bring up some evidence or some data on, you know, this is actually plausible and people are doing it and it's saving these patients from the medications, from being on insulin, which has long-term complications. And over time, as people saw my patients' results, I stopped getting pushback uh, because you can't argue with results. (laughs) Yeah. Well, some people still do, but yeah, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But no, I, fortunately the doctors I was working with and that were training me uh, mostly were very open-minded. And when I would either show them the data or show them my patient's results, they were inquisitive and they're like, oh, wow. And some I know actually ended up practicing more, at least for the patients who had diabetes, recommending lower carbohydrate diets. Um, now, I don't know that everyone's getting fasting insulin levels like I do and ordering calcium scans to look you know, at the heart arteries, see if there's calcifications there, but they really were open to the idea and again, stopped pushing back uh, on the way I was practicing. That's, I think that's fabulous because we hear so much, you know, I've spoken to other doctors where they've had huge amounts of resistance, you know, here in the UK, in a GP practice, for example, and they've had huge resistance from the people that they're working with. And it's such a shame. It's almost, I I keep saying this and it's, you know, it's going to get a bit boring, but it's almost criminal that they can carry on practicing that way. But yeah. I really, I feel that statement and I agree um, in many ways. This particular one that I probably, you know, I share a lot, but it just is so sticks out and is so powerful. There is a patient, a 12 year old that we were admitting to the hospital with new diagnosis of type two diabetes. It was an A1C above 10. And in the the following morning, I came into the hospital he had had pancakes and syrup for breakfast and we had to give him a lot of extra insulin because he ate pancakes and syrup. So you have to cover those carbohydrates with insulin. And so during rounds, when we were talking about each case, I asked, you know, can we put this kid on a low carbohydrate diet? And the attending endocrinologist said, what are you going to give him? And I was like, fat and protein. (laughs) And he said, so you're going to cause a heart attack with the fat. And I was like, no, but if you're worried about the fat, you know, we can make it a higher protein diet and less fat. And he said, so you're going to kill his kidneys. And I was like, just mind was blown. I was like, we're giving this 12 year old tons of insulin and saying it's okay to have pancakes and syrup because we're going to cover it with insulin, but we can't give you eggs for breakfast because 
we're going to cause a heart attack or kidney failure. And, you know, I pushed back and I said, I've actually reviewed the data. I don't see data that supports either of those statements. And but if you are aware of data, I would really appreciate you sending me that data. I'll review it. And we went back and forth for several minutes. Um, unfortunately, he never sent me any data and he won in, in the end because he is the attending. So the kid got to eat his pancakes and syrup and get high doses of insulin at 12 years old. It's such a shame, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. I'm guessing, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that back. Is it possible that a child that young having that much sugar could develop type 1 diabetes? They definitely or is it is it con- is it completely different? So it's different in that with type one diabetes, they will actually lose oftentimes totally the ability to create insulin. So they require exogenous insulin. So they have to give themselves insulin shots. He currently has type two diabetes and it could progress to the point his pancreas basically could just get so overwhelmed that over time it no longer can create enough insulin. And in that instance, he does now become almost kind of like you think have type one in that he has to give himself insulin. Otherwise it could be, you know, life threatening. So I think if he continues on that path, that is exactly where he's going. He would require insulin. Now, hopefully someone can catch him in the system and, you know, remove those carbohydrates decrease the insulin dosing. And at this point, I think he would totally be fine coming off of all insulin. But if that continues to be the way he is educated and continues being treated, then I think, and like you said, he basically is going to require it. At some point, his pancreas will stop making insulin. Yep, exactly. So I I just wondered if, because I've never really spoken about this with anyone, and I just wondered, you know, I've had type 1 diabetics on, but I just wondered even though type one is an autoimmune disease, I wondered if it is caused by too much sugar or is it something else that's going on? Usually there's something else going on that has triggered the autoimmune attack. And then at that point, the pancreas stops making insulin. And so you'll have kids. I mean, it used to primarily be, we would think of it um, with like very young kids, you know, two or three years old. So they're not having too much sugar typically to cause the pancreas to shut down. Um, but we are now seeing in patients with type 2 diabetes that they are becoming insulin dependent because of the excess sugar. Yeah. So even though it's like they basically have so much insulin going around, eventually their pancreas can no longer compensate and then their insulin, they just don't make it enough. Whereas with type 1, because of the autoimmune attack, they stop producing enough insulin. Um, now, it's possible with type 1, too, with them giving themselves the extra insulin, they can develop similar, and they do, similar complications as type 2 diabetes of insulin resistance, where they are requiring huge amounts of insulin, even though their body is not making it because they have developed this insulin resistance just from giving themselves so much insulin exogenously, so through the injections. Yeah. Brilliant. So what health benefits or changes did you notice when you switched to a low-carbohydrate diet? Yeah. So I'm back in undergrad, I was playing soccer, you know, maybe four times a week. I was on the club team and I actually had prediabetes, you know, it was just cut, hit the cutoff at 5.7, but it was kind of shocking to think I'm doing all this exercise. I, in my head was like, you know, I'm kind of eating low fat, avoiding red meat. I'm doing the right things. Although, you know, honestly, I was had more of a standard American slash low fat diet if when I really analyze it, but 
even despite the, the gym, the soccer training, I had prediabetes and I didn't feel terrible. I was an undergrad and I felt like I was doing good, but clearly on my insides, it was too much. It was taxing my body. So I have now had great normal A1Cs, usually low fives. Um, and when I, as I continue to go low carb and I have done both intermittently, we'll go do carnivore and as well as the ketogenic diet. Um, I feel more alert, more, um, my caffeine requirements went down. I just had better energy levels. So I actually couldn't even drink as much coffee as if I wanted, because I would start getting too jittery and too wired. Um, but it was a big thing for me was focus, uh, energy. And I never felt like my, and I know some people can have it, but never felt like my stamina for my sports was hindered by going low carb. Um, so I was, I was fortunate there and, um, yeah. So I think just my overall metabolic health improved. Excellent. Yeah. Lovely. So now you're working with Dr. Tro. Tell us what, what you do on a day-to-day basis when you're at work, cause you've been off work for a while. So you're going back yeah. next yeah, week. Absolutely. We're just coming to the end of September and you're going back to work at the beginning of October. Um, Tell us a bit about what you do there and how you're helping people. Yeah. So I love working with Tro and the rest of the team there. We have a great group of health coaches and um, office staff that is just a really good working environment. But on the daily basis, I love going to work. Now I'm working from my office at home, but I still love you know going to work because I am helping people get off of medications regularly. I mean, it is at least once a week, if not more. I am taking people off of medications rather than um, the typical chronic progressive disease mindset we have where we are just adding on medications because people come back in three months and they're worse than when we last saw them. So that's a lot of fun. So I'm helping people with their you know, weight loss, diabetes, high blood pressure, and if they're on insulin, you know, you have to be kind of cautious when you're titrating them off of insulin, especially if they're going from a very high carb diet to a ketogenic diet, that is a very quick transition off of insulin. And so working with patients sometimes on a daily basis, if they're doing that type of transition. And then the other thing that we're involved with, you know, Dr. Tro, again, the team has created this amazing app and in the app, there's community chats for um, that people can get extra support with. There's get help now at a uh, section of a chat. So if someone's really struggling and they feel like, man, you know, I might go off plan. What would you do in this instance? Instantly people can reply and try to provide that person with support. We are creating courses and we already have a course on cardiovascular disease and continuous glucose monitors in the app that people can take. And we're creating one for diabetes, hypertension, and sleep again, that people will be able to kind of go through on the app on their own time. And is that, is that for patients r- rather than doctors? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, some doctors might get some benefit. I think there is some benefit, especially maybe if they are taught in the, uh, you know, the way I was taught in medical school. Because when, for example, our diabetes course, we're going to launch that in November for um, Diabetes Awareness Month. And usually the the courses are going to be available for people who are you know paying for the premium app. But for the Diabetes Awareness Month, we're going to have the Intro to Diabetes course free for everyone because we want this is such a crucial topic that we want to give people education on. 
showing that it's not a chronic progressive disease, that you can actually put it into remission. You, if you have, you know, prediabetes, easily reversible. Um, but even for people maybe who just have signs of insulin resistance, like low HDL, good quote, good cholesterol, triglycerides that are higher or hypertension, all those things tie into insulin resistance. And we're going to show you how you can reverse that during that course. Um, so I think there's likely benefit for maybe people who had traditional medical training and did not, don't have that education on how you can turn diabetes and from this scary chronic progressive illness to a reversible or condition. Mm. So now I'm going to ask you a tricky question. Yeah. <laughs> What's your stance on cholesterol when particularly for women, we see as they get older, their cholesterol goes up. Where do you sit on that? Um, yes. Stance? So it, it's really nuanced. Um, Typically, I like to get coronary artery calcium scans in all of my patients. So we're looking under the hood. We're seeing, is there already evidence that damage has been done to the arteries of your heart and there's been calcium? Your body's repaired that damage and laid down some calcium. If there's already evidence that damage has been done, then I, and so someone maybe has a higher calcium score, I get more cautious about cholesterol. And maybe in that person, I'd say, Hey, we might want to do things to lower your cholesterol. If they don't have any evidence of damage or, um, then in that case, I'm like, look, whatever your body is doing, you're not laying down damage. The cholesterol is very unlikely at this point. I, we don't have evidence that it's harming you. And there's been trials that have looked uh, as far as like statins go and people who have calcium scans done. If they have a calcium scan above 100, the statin over the course of 12 years has shown benefit to decrease their chance of a heart attack. But if their calcium score is less than 100, the statin has shown absolutely no benefit. So I just have a very you know frank conversation. Here's the data that we have. There are some instances where it seems beneficial to lower the cholesterol. And even though there's really probably other mechanisms besides just lowering the cholesterol with the medications that's going on. But then there's other instances where we look at all your data and, you know, I don't think there's data to support that we should be trying to lower your cholesterol. And so it's, it's a long conversation, but it's very individual to each person in front of me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very nuanced, isn't it? It, it is. Yep. Yeah. So um, I'm going to go back to the question um, that we, when you were talking about James before, and I've got two questions there. So yeah. one is I see you're wearing an aura ring. Yep. Um, and so how's your sleep showing on there? How How's <laughs> your sleep going? <laughs> so the um, first few weeks, I'd probably say it was very disrupted. Um, you know, obviously you're waking up every couple of hours to feed. And initially what I was doing is I, you know, I'd get, go pick up James out of the bassinet, walk into another room, feed him, bring him back. And, you know, I might be doing that every two hours. Um, since then, and I know, you know, this is also, um, there's different recommendations on this, but we haven't, we now actually co-sleep. And with transitioning to that, the sleep on my aura ring has skyrocketed back to normal where I'm getting scores of 80 and sometimes even 90. 
um, because we're both able to basically sleep, he'll feed, and then we both go back to sleep without ever getting out of bed, you know, five times a night. (laughs) And um, so we've figured out a way that we feel very safe and comfortable with what we're doing and uh, definitely has improved my my energy levels, uh, as well as my aura data <laughs> with my Excellent. heart rate variability actually going up, my respiratory rate, body temp all going down is definitely improved. Yeah. So, and then carrying on with him, what, what are your plans when it comes to starting to introduce um, solids and feeding as he gets older? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> definitely we are planning on ribeye being his first food. And, um, you know, we'll probably mostly stick with good animal products, like good meats, fats, proteins as his main fuel source. Um, and then probably a little bit of vegetables here, um, as well, mostly non-starchy and minimal fruit. Honestly, I don't think we have a lot of plan on Matt and I don't eat much fruit anyway, so we're just going to let him eat what we eat. we are very healthy. And I think he will also be very healthy eating the way we eat. The hope is to avoid sugar for at least the first three years of life, maybe, you know, longer ideally, but I know it's, that's hard when kids go off to school or daycare, people give them things you can't control that. So uh, we'll see what happens, but definitely avoiding any, you know, juices or sugar, sweetened beverages, things like that for sure. Yeah. So I mean, now is ideal because you have total control and Mm -hmm. there's not very many other inputs, like you say. But I'm thinking, you know, that's going to create a massive foundation. And did you carry, did you continue being low carb through your pregnancy? I did. Yep. Yeah. Um, Sure. At certain points, I was definitely in ketosis during the pregnancy. The, I had about a two, maybe it was a three week time period during my first trimester where I had the most intense carbohydrate cravings I've ever felt in my entire life. And I did crave, uh, cave into some of those cravings. Um, after the first few, I was able to transition where it's more sweet potatoes and fruit to get that kind of craving to go away. But after those three weeks, I pretty much went back to our current diet pattern, which is um, low carb, which, you know, somewhere between 50 to maybe 75 grams of carbohydrate, probably typically just from non-starchy vegetables and salads. Yeah. So that's going to create him, give him a huge advantage in foundation for his health going forward. And, and then when he does get exposed to sugary foods, as he no doubt will, when he goes to school and other people's houses and stuff, you can probably be a bit, little bit more relaxed because you know that when he comes home, he's going to get the same food that he's always had. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can do only as much as you can. And um, so I, I think I'm excited about the the future. And I really do, you know, he has been such a wonderful baby for the past three months. And I, I think part of that is very likely due to, you know, my dietary choices. I am still very low carb. I've actually, I know I'm in and out of ketosis still through breastfeeding um, because I've checked my ketones and he is just doing amazing. I mean, he is, he does not whine very much. He is super happy baby. He started rolling over. He's holding his head up really well. And, you know, maybe that's the 150 or 175 grams of protein I'm eating per day. Maybe it's the lack of sugar, maybe a combination. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I'm going to add in another um, side to it, which may or may not be true. But since I've gone low carb, I have been much more chilled, less anxious, less angry, less hangry, um, which will keep, which is different hormones. Now, I used to be a hypnobirthing practitioner and we were teaching people how to relax and they were relaxing all through their pregnancy because they were practicing for the birth. And their babies, if they did it and they practiced and they did it and they were as calm as possible, their babies were so calm that, and I had it with my twins because I did hypnotherapy through my pregnancy. My kids were so chilled out. I never had these screaming kids um, that some people deal with. And I'm sure it's because of the endorphins floating around in your body whilst you're carrying the babies. So I'm sure that's going to have an effect. And even now going through breastfeeding, you know, he's still getting the hormones that you're producing. So I'm sure that is having another, you know, it's another side that's influencing him. Yeah, I, t- I totally believe that. Yeah. Cool. So while we're talking about food and things like that, what, what is your, what's an average day for you? What does it look like? Yeah. So I'll tell you for breakfast this morning, I had leftover ribs and brisket. <laughs> um, for lunch, I'm probably going to have salmon and eggs and maybe some veggies with that, some broccoli. And then for dinner, it'd be maybe ground beef and a salad. And um, on the salad, typically just do plain vinegar and a lot of put guacamole on as well. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. really simple. And and so people say, often ask, oh, have you got any recipes? And, and I just send them to websites that have recipes um, because that's, you know, my food is really simple and really plain like that. And I don't do a lot of cooking. My husband does most of the cooking, but he just does meat and vegetables. I'm not eating vegetables at the moment, but for the boys, he'll do meat and vegetables. Um, So it's really, really simple food that it doesn't need to be complicated, does it? It doesn't need to take a long time to prepare. No, I mean, we meal prep for most of the week and we'll throw something in the crock pot or instant pot, you know, big pork shoulder roast. And we'll eat on that for four days. And the veggies, if we're if we're having veggies with the meal, we have just throw them in the microwave for a couple of minutes and that's it. Put some salt, pepper, and we're happy. <laughs> Pretty simple. Yeah. I don't use microwaves. I have this thing against microwaves. <laughs> I we we only microwave in, in glass dishes, but I I can understand uh understand that. Yeah. So um in the video that um, was on Dr. Tro's website, um, one of the things you mentioned is that you want to get involved with changing the curriculum in medical school so that it involves more low carb. Have you been working on that? How's it been going? Yeah, so it's kind of some exciting news with that right now, actually. During residency, Matt Calkins, who's my husband, another family medicine doctor, and then Aaron Saner, who was a year above us, is now an attending where I did residency. We were we created a four-week elective, basically a nutrition curriculum that other residents could take. During my time there, only one person took it at that point. But now that Aaron is on his faculty, she has kind of continued working on this course and now has it set where residents can again take it. So 
there's one person who has already taken it, one person is about to take it again. So we'll have at least three people who have taken it. And if the feedback continues to be positive and we can really start implementing this across, you know, at least the family medicine department, I think from there we can get, grow into the internal medicine residency, then maybe this medical school here. And from there, you know, I can take it back to my medical school in Florida and potentially grow like that. And with, we're just going to have to see where this goes, but I think that is a, a plausible route and would be really exciting if we start getting and keep getting good feedback from residents that are currently taking what we've created. Now, the this course, we want it to kind of be all-inclusive and residents just get the information and then they can do with what they want. So the first module in the curriculum is, you know, how do we get here? How did the U.S. Dietary Guidelines come about? What was the science that was used? And then we want people to actually go through their own food frequency questionnaire, analyze a study for themselves on how red meat causes cancer and just kind of see the flaws in those studies and why we can't rely on that type of data. So we really, and then from there, sorry, jumping around, but go from there, we're going to have some whole food plant-based information. So people can see, you know, what type of data are they citing? What are their recommendations? And then show in other subsequent modules, you know, how the outcome data from clinics like Dr. Unwin, from Eric Westman, from Trozen Eyes Clinic, what people can do with a low carbohydrate diet. And at that point, you know, the, they've got the information, they can decide what they want. And so just in general, very excited that this is now out there. We just need to really hope that people enjoy it and feel like it's useful. So then we can really progress to other medical schools, residencies, et cetera. So you haven't had any pushback from the school. They're allowing you to do it, are they? <laughs> Not yet. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't know how many other attendings or, you know, the higher ups yet have actually gone through the curriculum. When I was a resident, I tried to get them to go through the curriculum because I wanted them to see, you know, look at all this data, look at how we got here. Because when you realize how we got here and the, um, I mean, Nina Teichel does a really good job in her book. I highly recommend The Big Fat Surprise, but you just, you can't help but get angered. And, you know, we haven't really progressed much since the seventies. We're, you know, so giving people that knowledge rather than just trusting what you were taught in medical school, I think is really important. And so I'm still hopeful that maybe we can get some of the other higher ups to actually review the course. But as long as right now they'll let people start taking it, then that's a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. That is fabulous. Because whether the doctor then goes on to use it or not, he's he knows about it or she, mm -hmm. you know, he or she knows about it. And therefore, when someone else, you know, a patient comes in and says, this is what I'm doing, they're less likely to poo-poo it and say, you shouldn't be doing that, it's dangerous. So whether they promote it or not, it doesn't really matter if they can then support somebody that chooses to do it. But hopefully they've got enough education to understand it. And I think that is a massive step in and of itself, whether whether they then use it or not. Yeah, that's actually that's such a great point because I've had many patients who have come to either see me at Tro um, now or when I was working in residency, who I told them to go on a low carbohydrate 
diet, you know, change their lifestyle. And they come back to me saying, oh, my other doctor said it was going to cause a heart attack. I can't do this. And so you're exactly right. If we could just stop having other doctors tell the patients you're going to get a heart attack from eating that higher fat, low carb diet, that would be a huge win. And, and again, there's just not data to support those statements. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's very flimsy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you if somebody, um, so I've got a client who um, she has been insulin dependent for maybe two decades, something like that. Um, it's taken us a long time. It's been titrating down over the two years. So it's taken time, but she's still on insulin. How do we get her to take, get rid of that last little bit? Um, and then the other thing is, if we, if we were, if she was to choose to not take insulin for a day and her blood sugars were really high, how dangerous is that for a one-off, you know, a one day a week, for example? Yeah. So if she, if you checked a C-peptide in her, you can't check an insulin level in her as useful since she's given herself insulin. But if you check a C-peptide, that will show if her body is actually creating insulin or not. So if her C-peptide is you know, extremely low or undetectable, that means her pancreas is like done and she is not creating insulin. And in that case, it could be very dangerous to go off of insulin because she could, you know, develop diabetic ketoacidosis. But if her body is producing insulin, so her C-peptide is elevated or normal, then she's, her sugar might go up a little bit, but she should not go into DKA if she is actually producing insulin. So that's kind of how I would probably do it. Make sure she, her body is producing insulin. And if it is, then she should be fine going off of insulin for a day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was thought maybe, you know, fasting might help, but if she's, yeah, it could. Having, the, if she's having the insulin, then that's not going to be helpful, is it? Cause it's going to take a blood sugar too low. Yeah. It, again, it would be if her body's making any insulin or not at all. If she's fasting and her body is not making insulin, it could still be problematic. But if her body's making even a little bit of insulin, it doesn't have to make it a lot, then fasting could very likely be the thing that's going to help enable her to get off of insulin. So Laura, tell us a bit about the SMHP. I mean, we've had on Doug and Pam and Dr. Tro, and so there's a lot of people that have, um, and Nick Norvitz. So we've had on lots of people that have been talking about the SMHP. So tell us from your point of view what's going on and how you're helping and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners is an organization that is really focusing on using therapeutic carbohydrate reduction to improve metabolic health. And Something that has recently happened that we're really excited about is the Journal of Metabolic Health. So that'll be our official journal for the society. And what is great about having a journal is there's so much research that is published either, if not directly against keto, that has a bias against keto. Yeah. And I'll give some examples of that, but hopefully this journal will provide an outlet for people who are using therapeutic ketosis to improve metabolic conditions. And we're seeing that left and right now, whether it's anecdotes or case reports, we've seen um, larger case study series of you know mental illness improving tremendously with the ketogenic diet, anorexia, binge eating disorders, migraines, 
I mean, the list goes on. You can pretty much find something in every organ system in the body. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And just everywhere, everything. So we want to provide a journal that is a great outlet for all things metabolic health using TCR therapeutic carbohydrate reduction to help improve humans' lives, basically. Yeah. And, you know, the bias that we're up against is evident with many articles and just not just published articles, but news articles all of the time that are coming out. And they'll say, you know, Mediterranean diet beats out keto. But if you go look at the keto med trial that they're citing when they say that, actually the group that was on the ketogenic diet was able to stop more medications and had more weight loss in the initial part of the trial. But they forget that stopping more medications and having would lower your blood sugar more. And so they say they're equivalent. And so that's just one example. Another one, the American College of Cardiology published that a low carb diet increases cardiovascular disease risk and news articles, you know, started popping up left and right showing that recently when really the study did one food frequency questionnaire, followed the group of people for 11 years after that one food frequency questionnaire. And they consumed about 125 grams of carbohydrate per day. And that was the data that they were now making this claim from. So it wasn't truly a low carb, not even close to a ketogenic diet. Right. Yeah. And, and it was a one single point in time following a group of people for 11 years. And that is just not any data that can really provide any useful information. Yeah. And so we hopefully, again, this is going to be an outlet that we can provide better science and just a place that people feel comfortable trying to get their information published. And so that's one area of the SMHP that I think is going to be a really big um, benefit to people. The other area along this research topic is we're going to hopefully have several doctors that can act as research mentors to up and coming doctors or, you know, PAs and Ps, other health practitioners that are wanting to get research out there because publishing research is not an easy process and there's so many steps, there's money barriers. And so having a mentor to actually guide you on that journey is really helpful. So that'll be another resource for members. And then right now already there's patient and provider resources on how to start a low carbohydrate ketogenic lifestyle how, what is the data behind it? And these are fairly short, you know, one page synopsis. So it's not overwhelming. You can take it to your doctor and say, Hey, look what I found. What are your thoughts on this? And that provides them already with data in front of them. Huh? This looks really promising. Maybe I should look into this and maybe they'll actually start offering that to their patients. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we should all go on to the SMHP website, which is the smhp.com. Org, I think. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. From memory. Um, yeah. And and maybe we should all just print that off and take it to our doctors the next time we go. But um, probably would... most of us are not going to the doctors very often. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, we just need to get the word out there more. And um, I think right now it, it really is becoming more accepted. When I was talking to one of the first year residents recently, he was talking about other people in his medical school that were interested in the ketogenic diet. And he himself 
was very interested in practicing a ketogenic diet and trying to help improve his patients. So it definitely is starting to get more traction in the medical community that is up and coming right now. Yeah. And, and when I was watching, I still call it low carb USA symposium of metabolic health in back in August. Um, I was noticing that there's just more and more doctors um, in just in the audience coming round. So I think, I think we are making it an indent how, yeah. where we get to before the tipping point get, kicks in. I'm not sure, but, you know, it's for for listeners listening. It's 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 you people out there, people listening, who are going to make the change. Because if you start saying to your doctor, "No, I want to do, I want to see somebody who has experience in low carb," and really insist, that's where the change comes from. Um, it never happens from the top down. It's always from the bottom up. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're doing, Jackie, with the podcast and, you know, getting that information out there to so many more people than I can do, you know, one person at a time with something like this is awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And on the SMHP's website, the other thing, there is actually a list of practitioners who are either certified or, you know, practice low carb. And so that can be a great resource for people who are looking to get started and they don't have a doctor or some provider that is able to provide them the support they need. Yeah. But yeah, and I'm, and I'm doing the um, training with the nutrition network. No, no. With Jeff Cotterman with the um, National Association of Sports Nutrition. Oh, cool. So right. doing it via yeah. um, personal training and sports nutrition. So I have done a nutrition network course, but um, yeah, I decided to go the sports route rather than because I'm not terribly sporty. So I think I will be able to help people who, like me, don't enjoy doing sports or have never done it. And so I think, you know, that's that's quite interesting to me. Yeah, no, I think that's great because they're really optimal metabolic health is combining being a physically active individual with the right nutrition. I mean, that's where you, you really get the biggest bang for your buck. Now, you know, at different stages of your life or your journey, it might not be the time to all of a sudden increase physical activity a lot or change your routine. But I think having someone who can help you figure out when that time is, and then start doing things is great and and it's needed. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't need to be very much to start with you know, just going for a 10 minute walk is better than not doing a 10 minute walk. Absolutely. That is so often where I recommend people start, you know, maybe even five minutes, like after dinner, you go for a five minute walk and then maybe next week you bump that five to 10 and just, yeah. Or if you're sitting down all day, just walking to the water fountain, being more cognizant about doing that several times throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. I call them exercise snacks just I love it yeah <laughs> little thing just throughout the day so instead of snacking on food do a little bit of movement and things like that and I often get people and I say okay what do you want to do in the next week and they'll come back and they say I'm going to walk 30 minutes a day five days a week and it's and they've gone from nothing to expecting to do 30 minutes a day for five days a week and I I stop them right there and say no that's too much because you won't do it and then you won't continue it how mm-hmm. about two minutes a day, three times a week. You know, we really, really make it a small step so that it's absolutely doable. 
and then work from there. Yeah, 100%. I have I've done that same thing where I'm like, I'm going to start meditating and I'm going to start meditating 20 minutes every morning before I do everything does not happen when that is my mindset, like not, not even close. <laughs> so yeah. it's your yeah. second, you know, starting with 30 seconds would be great. You know, if you can do 30 <laughs> seconds, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Excellent. So before we go to your three top tips why don't you tell us um how people can contact you how they can find out more about you um on all those sorts of things yeah so i have a substack agingsuccessfully.substack.com and then you can find me on twitter and instagram at laura buchanan md and if you're interested in the dr tro app um that's you know on either any app store and then you can also, if you want to find out more about our clinic and what we offer, you can go to Dr. Tro, Dr. Spelled out, uh, dot com. Yeah, excellent. So why don't we go into your three top tips? Yeah. So if someone is just trying to start a low carb lifestyle, I think kind of one thing I already said, going to the SMHP's website, so smhp.org, and just looking at that one page handout of here's the foods to eat and here's foods to avoid. If you do that, you're going to jumpstart your keto journey and get into ketosis. Um, if, and again, if you need to help you're on medications, things like that, you know, make sure you bring those other sheets to your doctor, see if they can help you. If you're struggling to make, and this is point two, if you're struggling to make the low carb keto a lifestyle change, then find a team that can help you. Um, you know, whether that's our app or going onto the SMHP's website, again, looking at that practitioner list, this doesn't have to be a journey that you're doing on your own. Um, and then third, be kind to yourself. Don't feel bad or like you failed if you had some carbs or went off plan for a little bit. It's going to happen to almost everyone, if not everyone. On average, people quit smoking seven times before they really quit smoking. And um, just at that next meal, get right back on track and eat even more than you might normally, but just make sure it's good fat, protein, good meats, because that's going to help curb those carb cravings that are going to come back when you reintroduce those carbs. Mm, yeah. And you said you're eating 150 to 175 grams of protein a day? At least, yeah. How tall are you? 5'7". Oh, so you're quite tall and very active. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, between the, I am still trying to be physically active, uh, breastfeeding, and I guess those those two things. My protein intake has gone up and is probably going to stay at minimum 150 a day for a while. Yeah, you need it. Yeah. <laughs> James yeah. needs it as well. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> so um, one question that I forgot to ask you, which we can do now, is... Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you or anything else that you wanted to talk about today? Um, one thing I think is important to just realize or is it's never too late. Don't ever think, you know, I'm maybe what I'm 70 years old or I'm 80 years old. that I, I can't change my lifestyle now. I have um, one of my favorite stories. I had a 50 year old patient who I was helping her do the ketogenic diet and she was feeling amazing. And on one of our follow-up appointments, she came in and told me that her mother at the age of 80 years old had come off of insulin. And 
I was like, that's incredible. And her, she felt better than she had felt in the past decade of her life. Her energy was so much better. She was being more active. Now her mom came off of insulin on her own without her doctor using the ketogenic diet, which I would not recommend. That is very dangerous, but <laughs> that is amazing. And so it truly is never too late to improve your health and just, yeah, it's really never too late. Yeah. I love that. So Laura or Dr. Laura, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been really fabulous. Thank you so much for having me again. It has been a wonderful time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.